Hey, Alexa, play the latest episode of Landline Podcast. But if you think about it, General Patton at the end of World War II wanted to go to war with Russia. He wanted to sort of keep the party going because he knew that was his thing, was war, and there wasn't really anything else for him. So he wanted to extend it and go to war with Russia, which would have been sort of an unending, pretty costly, but at times maybe even low-intensity conflict that would have lasted him the rest of his life. And to compare that to you, you know, your sort of anxiety growing up, as it is with all dudes, was around chicks for the most part. Now that's not really an issue for you anymore. So I think that maybe sort of subconsciously you've latched on to these things like people's relationship with technology or relationship with food as a way to sort of extend this anxiety into something that's going to be maybe considerably a lower level of anxiety, but it's the gift that keeps giving. It'll last you forever. So we can talk about that if you want. Welcome to Landline Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist that Alex could never have actually gotten unless I was his friend from 10 years ago. Landline? Hey, thanks for calling. Hey, thanks for being on the show, Max. How's everything going? Uh, it's okay. Do you want to do your disclaimer now? Absolutely. Welcome back, Max the Marine from Snow Blanketed, North Carolina. Before we start the show, I do need to make one legal disclaimer, which is Max refuses to join the show unless I say out loud that the only reason he's agreeing to speak with me on a recorded line is because he would like to talk to somebody on the phone. It's not because he wants to be on the podcast. Did I get that right? Yeah, also, there's a, like, it's not just the talking on the phone. Like, we text a lot about the podcast, so there's a texting also. That's the only reason you text me about the podcast is because you want somebody to text with well yeah i mean i was thinking more that's why you return my texts because i've always texted you quite a bit you just don't always respond do you think i'm using the podcast do you think i'm using you for the podcast is that what this is about i mean it's it benefits both of us it, it works well it's like the bird uh cleaning out the uh, alligator's mouth <laughs> well before we get into the details of today's show and your analysis of uh, my drinking habits, which we won't take the entire day to talk about like we did the other day. By the way, I haven't had a beer since that podcast. The last beer I drank was the one you heard me open on the previous show. Um, I, w I wanted to get back into my rhythm of reading something I wrote 
I thought it was a good entry. We talked a little bit about parties and weddings, and there was a wedding two years ago now that uh, was a long distance for two of our most close friends to fly to, one of whom is speaking to me on the phone now. And what I decided to do was a crowd investing uh, or, you know, Kickstarter campaign, Indiegogo campaign to get Max and Mike to Chris Baker's. Oh, no, Tim's wedding. Tim's wedding in California. So here it is. Here we go, Max. And feel free to comment when I'm done. Okay. Friends, this email is not in jest. We have a summer of seeing one another at weddings. How exciting. A mere six Fridays from now, or maybe seven, we will be drinking wine, guzzling beer, and snorting cocktails while angrily judging San Francisco hipsters at Tim's rehearsal dinner-esque function to be held at his place of work, no less. The only thing missing? Max and Mike. Both are too poor, too disorganized, and too lazy to come. Until now, I'm writing you today to crowdsource Mike and Max coming to Tim's wedding. They guarantee 48 hours of nonstop entertainment and annoyance, including offensive one-liners, awkward comments, and multiple instances of staying up too late and never shutting up. In a few short, in a few short keystrokes and a momentary gesture of goodwill, you can donate to their airplane fund, thereby improving the weekend for all involved. I am serious about this offer, and I will not take no for an answer. And then I put in a bunch of uh, excerpts from some text chains or email chains that the three of us had corresponded over. Now, Max, that's the wedding where you slept in my rented RV and uh, pissed on the floor at 4 in the morning. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. Seems like maybe my plan came back to bite me in the ass. Yeah, I also remember, I don't remember exactly, but I believe I did have the money to go. I was just trying to get out of going somehow and then, uh, and also maybe get out of paying if you guys wanted to pay. Um, but I did end up going and having the money to go. So that was also on the heels of a couple of crowdfunding campaigns a little bit more serious than this one. And I, that was a, that was a risk in, in retrospect that had been a risky play by me. Cause I actually did set up the Indiegogo campaign but it was on the heels of Mitch's yurt raise, and there might have been some... I think I gave, like, $50 to his yurt. Which he's been using and making a profitable business since then. So, you know, I guess which was a better cause, you two coming to the wedding and getting shit-faced for 48 hours, or Mitch having a viable business, that's really for the public to decide. I'm not going to weigh in. Um, Wait, did anybody donate to uh, me and Mike's fund? Well... <clears throat> Let's see. Let's just go over a couple of the responses here. Oh, my God. There's some great. So the first one I got is from Saul, our previous landline guest. And if you want to listen to Saul and I talk about the struggles of alcohol in January, go to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show. Remember, you can always call us on the landline at 503-894-8480. Saul wrote back, I'm honestly halfway serious when I say that I would put $500 in to be permanently removed, that's bolded and underlined, 
from every mass email, Kickstarter, crowdfuck funding, and every other correspondence that gets sent out for life. Then Gabe said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and then Mark took me seriously or didn't take me seriously. And he got mad about how I was like competing with Mitch, blah, blah, blah. And then there are a bunch of pictures and, you know, it goes on from there. And anyway, I mean, everybody, I mean, there was probably what, like eight or nine people on that uh, thing. If everybody had just given, you know, $200, then me and Mike each could have gotten a thousand dollars. I think that would have been fair. There were like there's 16 people on this list. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely could have uh, put 1600 bucks to good use. I may not have gone to the wedding, but I would have gone somewhere. Well, I think this is a new level of crowdfunding that people should look into. Whether or not you care about me and my group of friends, everybody has some friends that they really wish were there for big events. You know, reunions, come home for Christmas, weddings, whatever the case may be. And is there more value for your dollars than than buying somebody a plane ticket who's going to come home and wake up at the police station or hook up with someone embarrassing or get in a giant fight with someone and say they're never coming home again? I mean, those are the sort of moments that you can't recreate with, you know, television shows or regular events. So something to think about yeah. for all you out there. And that it's kind of on the lines actually of one of those great ideas we had um, that we should have included in the business excavator last week with Saul, but I'll workshop it with you, Max, instead, which is this idea of a gambling site where you can make bets on your friends. So we all know about fantasy football and all these boring group gambling ways that everyone's gotten into in the last few years. What about a site where you and your friends could enter into a legal contract for a wager and the money would be held in escrow for things like who's going to have a first baby, who's going to get divorced first, who's going to get a felony charge against them first, whether or not Max will actually become a cop at any point in his life. I mean, those are bets people really care about and they can go on for years and you can really get some great odds going. I mean, that's something I think a lot of people would buy into. Yeah. I mean, another kind of fun idea or maybe a more practical idea would be like before a wedding, you could take bets on, you know, who's going to throw up first or who's going to, you know, cause some sort of issue first or whatever. Um, the only problem then is like, if everybody's there, then it would be sort of like betting on your own team because then you could try, you know, you could, if you're betting on like Noah throwing up first, then you could kind of antagonize him into drinking more. So, I don't know how fair that would be. Well, I think it would make everything that much more fun if people are on both sides of Noah getting punched in the face as hard as some kid outside the Irish pub on Main Street in our hometown can hit him on the night before one of his best friend's wedding and they can egg him on to the point where he actually gets punched like he did. And I think that that's actually a pretty good, you know, I, I, I feel like throwing a bet. In the same way that people are like fixing gambling or fixing boxing fights, that's that's all that's all well and good if you can actually get the entertainment out of it. Yeah, uh, real quick, what's even funnier about uh, Saul's comment on that um, on your crowdsourcing thing about him not wanting to be involved is that then at the wedding, 
me and Saul got into a kind of heated argument about me sleeping in his tent. And uh, some girl at the wedding thought that we were a gay couple who was arguing. Uh, and that's when you came and slept in our six-person RV that actually fit two people comfortably. Yeah, it was a few hours before that, but yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, um, I think with all that, it's a really good uh, entrance into our discussion about alcohol. Just briefly, you've been a man of various consumption levels over your life. I would say feast or famine doesn't even begin to discuss your um, circuitry with alcohol. I know you listened to the last episode with Saul. Do you have any added value comments for you know, my current struggle to either go whole hog or completely be cut off or someplace in the middle? Well, I think it's it's worth noting that since I would assume you guys are referring to me as a person who uh, can't control themselves at weddings, that I don't get really any credit for how little I actually drink. So, I mean, I could go like six months without drinking. It would be fine. And that's because you just don't really care about, like, drinking out of a habit at the end of a night. You're much more a social binge drinker. Like, what, what, what is your general approach with drinking, Max? Like, let us, let us cue into that because some of the people in the real world who see you think that you only drink. But the reality is that maybe you drink the least amount of any of us. Well, I mean, I've never really uh, seen the point in, like, just sort of sitting at home and having a few beers. Plus, you know, I've always been sort of disgusted by the taste of alcohol. I think beer is disgusting. Wine is disgusting, regardless what any of you, you know, douchebag liberals say. It's basically vinegar water. It doesn't taste good. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. I'd really prefer to just sort of go out and uh, get get looped up every month and a half or so. And what are the hangovers like for you after you have a three-day wedding bender and end up being the one who soiled yourself at the party? Yeah, that was the night before the wedding. But, um, yeah, they're pretty bad now. I mean, New Year's Day, I didn't get out of bed until 7 p.m. So they're bad enough now that I would be totally fine without, like, really getting banged up at all anymore. And do you have any words of wisdom for me as I go through my struggle? I haven't had a drink for a couple days. Do you think I should just stop drinking or just get absolutely... You know, one thing that came up on the podcast uh, that we didn't analyze, but Saul said, do you think anyone out there just decides that they are going to get completely like fatter, drunker, and lazier on their New Year's resolution? People always take one month off for drinking... Another way to do it would be to not drink for 11 months and then to just get absolutely blitzed one month a year, like July, where you just decide that you're going to, you know, you got two weeks of vacation and the other two weeks you're only working like Tuesday through Thursday and you are going out every night enjoying the summer and like getting it going and you have such a great time that you don't need to drink the other 11 months a year. Yeah, or just go to like Tijuana for three weeks or something. Yeah. Um, Probably not really uh, practical because you would be so hungover after not drinking for that long that you wouldn't really be able to keep it going like that. Um, as far as your drinking, 
from like the amount that you talked about, it didn't sound like that was particularly problematic. I mean, you said you had a couple beers at night and then got drunk like once every few weeks. That's not really too bad. Saul thought I was lying. I probably was lying. Yeah, yeah, I I kind of agree with him on that. But if, you know, if that is how much a person is drinking, I would say that's not too much. Well, I have gone four days now, no booze. Obviously, I've said it five times on the podcast, so I'm pretty proud of myself. Played in two Ultimate Frisbee games and gone on a jog. So And scored the winning point in the Ultimate game yesterday. So feeling pretty on top of my game. I've been thinking a lot about how there should be an in, some way for 35-year-olds to become professional athletes, major air quotes around that. Um, I would love to play an organized team sport six days a week in a re- play rugby. really well-organized competitive environment. And people are always suggesting yoga and they're suggesting, you know, going to spin class or a kickboxing gym or even finding a tennis partner. I mean, there's obviously a lot of merit to all of that stuff, but how fun is it to have high school style practices three days a week and two organized games with level fields, lines, hired referees, nets on the goals, whatever it happens to be, and a small crowd cheering you on. I mean, there turns out there aren't many greater hour and a half moments of your life, not just for the glory of being a high schooler and scoring, but rather because your body feels so good running around for an hour and a half, trying your hardest to accomplish an athletic goal, the time goes by so much easier that way. And you're not having to schlep to the gym and get into the shower room and then like pump iron and do the sets and be looking up at everyone's Fox News TV and like worrying about whether or not you're checking people out and all that stuff. But you're sort of a gym rat, so you probably feel differently than I do. Well, I mean, you're describing men's league rugby to a T. That's exactly what it is. I don't know if they have two games a week. They generally have one game on Saturday, unless maybe it's like a tournament, um, or you could do like sevens. There's seven-on-seven rugby, in which case you would probably do a tournament every other week or something like that. But, yeah, they usually have like two or three practices a week, and they take it really, really seriously. And rugby is dangerous or not less dangerous because there aren't pads? What for, for rugby neophytes, is it a broken neck situation, or is that not really how it goes? Yeah, I mean, if you're in the scrum, if you will, uh, if you're rucking, then it can F your neck up for sure. But, like, I don't think there's – there's probably fewer injuries in rugby – than there are in football, if I had to guess. Um, I would say uh, you don't hit quite as hard. You don't get hit as hard because there's no pads, but you probably hit more often than in football. Um, But it's sort of like, since it's not an American sport, you can jump in at 35 years old and you wouldn't be on the A team, but you'd be on the B or the C team and it would be totally fine. You wouldn't really be expected to like know what you're doing. Um, yeah, you, you'll get knocked around for sure. All right. Good tip. Well, Max, last time we talked to you, you were trying to sell the Kia Rio. You were engaging with the local police department on a large plot to try to uncover a Craigslist scammer who asked you to ship your vehicle to another state. You, uh, Randy, 
you were, uh, you know, hanging at sheets and looking forward to getting through the holiday season without too much socialization during your meals because we know you don't like to mix adult conversation and the inhalation of your food source. So why don't you? Oh, ca- that's not true. Yeah, you said you don't like to be. You don't like to like be in mixed groups while you eat. No, no. What I don't like is when people combine food and drinking at parties, or if people like eat at the bar, or if people go out to dinner and then go out drinking. Those are things that I think are completely incompatible, and it's pretty inappropriate that people do it as often as they do. I think it should be. You should either be going out to dinner or just having dinner or going out and drinking. Or if it's a party, then why fuck around with all this stupid food? Let's just get some booze and get banged up. I don't see any need to, I don't want to sit there and watch some girl like at a party stuffing her face with hot sausage dip all night, which is a thing that happened at a party I went to recently. It was disgusting. So it's, so everyone should go to their feed lot before they come to the party. If they want, I choose not to. I like to go out on an, an empty stomach. I like to be light on my feet, so to speak. But, yeah, if you want to eat, before, I mean, I'm not Stalin. I'm not going to control what people do before they go out. But, yeah, once you're out, there's no need to eat at that point. You can eat after the bar, certainly. Go eat some pizza. Who cares? We went to get some pizza after my fateful night at the 80s prom party at this uh, sort of grunge metal band themed pizza shop called Sizzle Pie. And not very many interesting things happened. I got a slice of ham and pineapple, which is one of my favorites. Such a stupid pizza. If I'm going to eat a tortured animal, I definitely want it to be combined with pineapple whenever possible. But... (laughs) um, one time in my life where now, this wait, hold on, let me just get through this. One time in my life where this has happened, I went to put some red pepper flakes on my pizza at the table and someone had unscrewed the top and the entire container just came out on my slice. <laughs> and so <laughs> what did you do? I mean, they all stuck to the pizza, I would assume, right? Yeah, I had I you know, I think as everyone who listened to the last pod knows, I was in a special mood that night. So it was a combination of sort of a weird silence that I had taken up. I was doing sort of like a, a monk's silence meeting like a giant drunkenness, meeting this 80s outfit with blow-dried hair and a gold chain. So the three members of my table, which were all family members, my wife and my brother and sister-in-law, they took care of me. They went right up to the guy at the counter and they got me another free slice because um, clearly, really, the the pizza shop security was at fault for not allowing the, you know, not carefully minding the previous customers and making sure that they weren't unwinding any of the pepper shakers for people like me. But uh, Do you think it could have been Mitch who was in there before you and did that? Why? Because of the yurt fundraising snafu? No, I mean, it would just be funny if he just did that randomly and then you happened to be the person who, you know, dumped it out on your pizza. No, Mitch Mitch is, Mitch is likes things to function properly. That's one of his, you know, major tenements of his life, so, or tenants of yeah. his life. So, no, he wouldn't do something like that. So you, you weren't in the mood for spicy pineapple at that point. <laughs> there was part of me that kind of wanted to, you know, brush it or vacuum it off and eat it because I really do like hot food, but. You know, and there's that moment for every fat kid, which I am, and I think you are at your heart, 
there was a moment where I was like, yeah. yes, I get another slice and then I'm going to, I'm <laughs> totally going to screw the man and I'm going to get this slice back somehow. I'll tear the cheese off and still get all the carbs and it'll be me screwing them. I'm getting a two for one deal and the jokes on them, but that's not what happened. Yeah. In that situation, you definitely don't give the first piece back. You eat that. All right, so tell us what's going on. Give us an update. We heard some rumors. Well, that you now might be... let's let's get back to your issues at the '80s party. It seemed like what you were really—it wasn't really your the amount of alcohol that you drank. It was you were uh, embarrassed about what you might have done. Like maybe you had some toxic shame uh, the next day. Was that right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, I can um, empathize with that. Granted, I'm sure. If you're looking for, you know, <laughs> I'm sure whatever your idea of toxic shame is doesn't even move the needle for me. So you're sort of barking up the wrong skirt if you want me to feel bad for you there. But I would say that, um, God, this fucking echo is killing me. Can you do something about that? Call right back. It doesn't matter. Just call this number Wait, back. Is that going to... Is that going to cause or solve the echo? It might solve the echo. It might be like an iPhone thing. You You... All right, I'll call back. Okay, bye. All right, you're you're back on. How does that sound? Hey, thanks for taking my call. <laughs> you're welcome. Does it uh is it better? Oh yeah, echo's gone. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, what were you saying? Toxic shame. Um, you were. I, I, I'm looking for sympathy in terms of your behavior and toxic shame obviously you're bucking up the wrong skirt like i said because it doesn't even move the needle for me in terms of the toxic shame that i've felt at times um but what is it that you you know think you might have done or that you're worried you might do when you're drunk that like causes us fear okay that's a great question and i think it actually alludes to some of my fears around what I put on the podcast, too. So there's a lot here. There's a lot of meat on this bone that we can chew through. So if I was on a subway car in a major American city and there was some sort of large, significant mishap, you know, people's heads probably go to a terrorist bombing, but whatever, an electrical fire or the doors wouldn't open or... There was an icy road and we got into some sort of altercation where everyone got stuck in the tunnel or think of a boat disaster or even there was that train and like, was it Seattle that went off the bridge into onto the highway? Yeah, absolutely. Or even consider something much more uh, trivial, like there's a head on collision at the ultimate Frisbee game. <laughs> Whether or not people believe this about me, I know in my heart that I am incredibly, incredibly empathetic. That to use the most cliche word of all time, I'm colorblind. I don't have a ton of judgment. I don't have a ton of true, authentic judgment for people. I understand the nuances of political argument around immigration and around, you know, integration and all of these issues. But I do judge people on their character. I don't have a ton of resentment or anger or, um, you know, whatever it's called, preconceived notions about people on things that matter. You know, I can look at you at how you dress and think you're a douchebag and, like, rip you apart in my head 
at the coffee shop because I'm annoyed about like the glasses you chose from Warby Parker. But if you broke your leg, I'd be the first one to call 911, make sure you had enough air, ask if there was a medical professional, and take care of you and make sure that from wherever you are now to wherever you're going to go that you are in the best hands. Now, if there was some sort of test of being a good person, would I get the highest grade on earth? Probably not. But genuinely, I don't have true negative feelings that would impact someone's life in a way that would set them in a in a worse place. Having said that, but I know that, and I know that the people who know me know that, and I know that I have a good moral compass, and you know, other people may or may not believe that. I don't really care. Now, I, I bet Donald Trump makes this speech before every single cabinet meeting. <laughs> so you never know how stuff goes like this. I mean, do you think Trump wouldn't provide, like, emergency medical care to somebody if they were in need? If I could choose between having Trump or Obama in that subway car stuck in a tunnel in New York, I'd rather have Obama. I think that's where that's where you and me differ. Okay, so, I mean, I think his community organizer, whether or not you think he's a phony and he was out for himself, he is. But do you do I think he listens to people? I don't think Trump would, like, tell I just think Trump would – he wouldn't listen to he, – he, I don't think he would have the best intuitive decision, and I don't think he would listen to others and make a good reason one after they gave him the input. Um, but I think Trump is much more of like an everyman, and when it comes to like – you know, if I sprain my ankle on the subway, I think Trump would be much more understanding of that than Obama would. Man, I could. Either way, it's, I, it's off point. Yeah, off point. But that's a great – I mean, there's a great discussion, and, and we're not going to have it right now. So with that all said, I am so sarcastic, I am so pessimistic, and I have a pretty cutting sense of humor, and I can be crass. So if you throw me into mixed company where my wife's professional reputation is somewhat on the line – <laughs> and then you add alcohol and you add in general. I mean, again, these people are all probably fine, but I'm I'm I have a chip on my shoulder about the run of the mill, upper middle class Portland, Oregon yuppie. It's not not my favorite subgroup, right? You know, if if I had to Certainly people in Watertown, Mass, who live next to me and would drink a suitcase of Bud Light every single night to make sure that they were watching the Bruins-Patriots game properly and would even in the interim when the games weren't on make sure that they could listen to sports radio properly by drinking light beer and singing karaoke at 3 in the morning. Those guys are fucking assholes, but I actually am less offended by their stereotypical identity than I am by a democratic voting urban planner in the Pacific Northwest. Sorry. I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah, me... I mean, I, I think 90% of the country would agree with you on that. I mean, nobody like, likes those people except for those people. So when you throw me into a situation where the people are probably great and we probably have a lot of common interests – probably both shop at the farmer's market. We're probably both reading some of the same political blogs. We probably some, one of the guys who was there plays in my pickup ultimate Frisbee game. And I didn't even know that. And he actually, the, the uh, first game after the eighties prom put, knocked the wind out of me running full speed into my stomach with his <laughs> fists out. So, 
I mean, we share common interests. It just so happens that people I share common interests with sometimes bother me. It's a self-loathing thing. But back to your question, the problem becomes the heart of the issue is do they get it? Do they get my sense of humor? Do they get that the things coming out of my mouth are within the bubble of I'm a good person? And then also if you really want to sort of start stretching the question further, are you a good person if you say the things that I say? Is it is it enough to say, to to make a big blanket statement like the one I made 10 minutes ago when this rant started? I am a good person. Don't worry. I'm going to be slightly offensive in the next 10 things I say to you while we're having tequila at this party. Is that good enough anymore? Or it is good enough. And I hate that even I am now threatened by this overabundance of politically correct conversation that's in the common lexicon right now if those are the right words so that's where the public shame comes from i wake up at after a lot of social events from a small intimate dinner party to a you know sleepover weekend at a country house with other white yuppie 32 year olds to a blowout 80s prom party and i say to myself do those people like me but even worse than that did they get my jokes? Do they get that I fundamentally want the world to be a better place and have chosen a path through my work and through my decision making to do what I can to improve the world in my eyes? Or do they think I'm just a self-centered, loudmouth asshole like I could have come off as? So that's the answer to your question. What, what's your well, analysis, Dr. Spock? You know, different, like, Different drunken acts, I think, warrant different sort of judgments or different responses. Like, if you're just causing physical damage to the property, you know, if you do it sort of by accident or as, like, a way to get the party going, then that's pretty understandable. It might be annoying, but, like, it's not like you're, uh, you know, singling anyone out. Like, you know, I kicked a champagne bottle through a window at a New Year's party one time. And so that was just to get the party going. It had to be done. And it wasn't like I was trying to be mean to any one person. And, you know, I replaced the window, no big deal. Um, now, if you, say, purposely punch a hole in the window or break down a door or something like that, you know, that sort of starts to get into inappropriate. But at the same time, you're drunk. Like, I don't think anybody would really hold it against you. Maybe they would. I don't know. But it's not It's not like you're being, being mean to any one person. Um, if you're making big blanket statements about Portland hipsters in general, when you're drunk, it would be kind of inappropriate for anybody to really hold that against you because, you know, again, you're not singling any one person out. Now, if you were to be mean to one specific person who maybe couldn't really defend themselves, like that uh, comment you made at that dinner party one time about the girl having to super dry vagina or something like that, you know, maybe that is sort of getting into the territory of stuff you shouldn't say. Wait, what? When did I say that? I don't know. You talked about it uh, in one of your uh, earliest podcasts. It's with a bunch of business school people, and you were kind of oh, yeah. at like a dinner party. That and you was said bad. that one of the girls in your class looked like she had a drive to China. That was bad. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was good. There you go. There's a – if we are going to make a timeline – of moments where I woke up and feel felt horrible about myself. That is that 
event is on the timeline. Which yeah. maybe this... And now the caveat to that is if the person that you're singling out is a public servant, like say, you know, a police officer, a firefighter, whatever, then you don't have to feel bad. Whatever. That's they get paid to be insulted by drunk people. Fuck them. Who cares? So but if it's just a normal person at the party and you were like really mean to them, then uh yeah, just apologize again. If somebody's drunk, who cares? Just just apologize, you'll be fine. Well, so how do you, in all seriousness, if you see that the sort of comedy and entertainment that people subscribe to is certainly on the cutting edge of what's appropriate, is that is there is it that barrier that the screen or the radio speaker creates between them and the content provider that makes it okay? And if you bring it into the real world and bring it into their dinner party, it's not okay? Or do you just have to choose? I mean, every comedian that people revere and look up to, other than Jerry Seinfeld, who turns out to really not be that funny in his stand-up but had an amazing show. A lo- I shouldn't say everyone. Tons of the people that we look up to to say not only funny but super enlightening and informative things are banking on announcing certain pu- – you know, thoughts that come through their brain that other people aren't willing to release. It's like having a governor in between your brain and your mouth. And I have no governor and I never have. And I guess I've, I've created one in work situations, but so like, why are these people all going home to watch Bilber's Netflix special? But then if I say something like it's a small white world when people are talking about how they both know the same girl from Middlebury at a potluck that that's somehow offensive because they work in you know refugee uh nonprofit circles well i mean part as far as like having a governor i would say uh if you like you know the the best comedian of all time obviously is cat williams and he certainly has no filter so um, but he's sort of become a crazy person. So if you want to be really funny, then you're probably going to have to offend a fair amount of people. You got to break some eggs to make an omelet, so to speak. Um, and also uh, a lot of it probably has to do with like the crowd that you hang out with. I mean, you probably hang out with a relatively uptight crowd at this point, I would say like Portland hipsters, regardless of, you know, how long their hair are, hair is, or, you know, how dirty their feet are, they probably are super uptight people. And them not laughing at some random joke you made would be a good example of that. And maybe it's the same with, like, business school people. Um, so, and, you know, you can say whatever you want when you're hanging out with all of us from Hanover, and we all have really good senses of humor. I mean, maybe not Noah and Gabe, but everybody else does. So I think that's a pretty good example of, of uh, I don't know, something. Gabe has a selectively good sense of humor when it fits his professional needs. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Um, all right, well, I, I think before... He did before, a really <laughs> joke at Mark's wedding. What'd you say? I said he did make a really funny joke at Mark's wedding. Do you want to say it out loud, or is it not appropriate? No, it's fine. It's... um. I was wearing this tie that I thought was like really nice, but I guess it was, you know, not a very nice tie. And he walked up and he said, 
Oh, nice tie. Did you get that at the Listen Center? (laughs) (laughs) Which is the the local Goodwill. Not that funny, Max. Um, It was funny when he said it. All right. Well, one last comment on this, and then we're going to change gears. I think real quick, I just finished my Monster, and I'm about to drink this cup of coffee. So I'm pretty jacked up. Wow. So what what color monster? We need to know. Purple. <laughs> Is that your first monster since the last monster you drank during the podcast? Yeah, it is. I had a uh, Mountain Dew kickstart the other day in class because I didn't want to drink coffee because I didn't want the kids to think I was like a lot older than them. So I got a Mountain Dew kickstart. Um, but yeah. All right, we're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Just one quick second. The comment I just made about people will oftentimes will be like, "Oh, do you know Brian Jones?" Like, I know Brian Jones too. Like, my sister used to date him, and they he played lacrosse with my other friend at prep school. Like, that's a conversation that happens. And if it's not prep school, you can you know substitute Knowles or substitute some organic farming certificate program or substitute you know, whatever liberal arts college you want. I mean, there is a world of people that are working in the same circles and have crossover with each other. And I always say to that, it's a small white world. And yeah, and I always, I always regret it the second it comes out of my mouth. And I always say it the next time anyways. That's a perfect example of if you don't get that joke, then you don't get me or my sense of humor. The reason I'm saying that is to make everyone remember that even if they are working at the recycling plant and helping people understand how to turn plastics into fertilizer, they're still part of the white upper class that's been running this country. I don't care if they voted for Bernie Sanders. They are part of the lineage that is creating the system that they supposedly hate. So if you want to start changing things up, don't just go to another four-year college for $175,000 a year with a bunch of other white people that you're going to keep in contact with the rest of your life. Decide to go and hang out someplace else and meet new people and do something a little bit more significant. So that's where, how do I say all that to someone that I just met after I've completely offended them with my it's a small white world comment? It's probably better that you just don't say that at all to people who you just met. Just, yeah. As a general rule, it's not needed. I disagree. I think I think life is too short, and this is this is where I think I need to just find the line that I'm willing to cross. And maybe alcohol has nothing to do with it, but uh, maybe alcohol is the reason I feel guilty about it. And if I could just come up with my own sober reasons for doing what I do, then I can carry them on to a few alcohol fueled endeavors as well. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't, you know, charge. Well, also doesn't, it doesn't sound, I mean, except for the, the drive the China comment, it doesn't sound like you're doing or saying anything that's particularly that bad. You're not like saying anything that's going to get you uninvited from the next party from what I've heard. So I wouldn't really worry too much about it. I think I've been uninvited to a few parties, but all right, hold on one second. I'm going to add another guest in, and uh, we're going to do a quick three-way. Just hold, hold, please.
choices, Colin. Saul? Hello? Max? Yes? Is this Max? Oh, hey, B. Hey, man, how's it going? I haven't talked to you since the uh, the tent issue at Tim's wedding. Yeah, I prefer not to uh, kick old skeletons, but we can go there if you want. I mean, if you had just gotten me, if you had just rented me the tent, like a separate tent, like I'd asked you to do, then we wouldn't really have had that whole that whole issue. I wouldn't have peed in the Winnebago also. Right, and then I would have returned a peed in tent, and it would have been my credit card that was charged for it while you had left the state. No, I wouldn't have peed in the tent. I was standing when I peed in the Winnebago, which means that I thought I was at a urinal. I wouldn't have done that laying down. I'm not an yeah, animal. I, I only I only rent gaudy uh, cabin tents, and had I rented you one, I would have done it right, and the ceiling would have been at least six feet high, which exceeds your own height by at least six inches, and <laughs> would have been just fine standing up, peeing right down the side of it, pretending you were in the middle of the biggest urinal of your life. You know, I actually have been telling people I'm 5'10 for my whole adult life when really I'm like 5'9 or 5'9 and a half maybe. Saul, we really just uh, broke down a little bit of my toxic shame and Max did a great job of analyzing me. But um, any other moments of reflection for you from the last podcast or do you want to just you can just keep going tit for tat. I, I'm really having you on to promote the last show, which our listeners should check out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever they listen. Remember, you can call the landline at 503-894-8480. And your number one goal as a happy listener is to – your number one job is to tell a friend. Your number two job is to leave messages on the landline. Let's fire it up, people. The number's right on your iPhone now. You know, that phone that you carry around and look at porn at and, like, figure out how to buy plane tickets to your next vacation destination is also a telephone. And you can just hit the number 503-894-8480 and leave me a message that I can play on the air. So, um, anyway, Saul, any reflections, any tidbits? You want to just talk to Max? I'll, I'll, I'll stay out of things. Well, no, this is, this is a three-way call with all the risks, rewards, and benefits that such an arrangement entails. I think absolutely all three of us should be talking. Uh, last, last podcast was great. I think there's something in it for everyone, whether you're kind of the, you know, uh, champagne and stuffed mushroom tort crowd who wants to walk around talking about the last party they went to, or whether you're the stale donut and coffee crowd who meets in a church basement and talks about how alcohol destroyed their lives. Then, you know, I think there's just something for everyone. We're like the, the vanguard of, of podcasts. There's really, you know, whether you have a lot or a little, um, there's something for you. So, Max, uh, Saul actually let me in on a little gossip. You know that nothing is sacred between this group, which is that we, we're going to get into how you went back to school, the details after we let Saul go. But you were late for a class and then you actually couldn't find the classroom and that was all because you were worried about looking old or something like that? What was that story? Not exactly. No, I was talking to Saul on the phone before class, and then he was saying, well, are you uh, worried that you won't be able to keep up with the med school classes, like if you get into med school? And I said, no, because chances are I'll probably get weeded out before then, and if I don't, then I 
would be able to keep up. But then I was saying, you know, realistically, probably going to get weeded out at some point. And then I said, hey, you know, I got to go. My class is about to start. And then I realized I was standing in front of the wrong classroom on the wrong floor of the building. And I had to rush to get to the right classroom. And how's the weeding out going so far? Do you feel like you're going to pass that first quiz you had? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it, it should be fine. It's um, it's only the second week of class. Plus, like, all of this week basically was snowed out. So we haven't really had much much in the way of classes. I, I just I thought it was ironic that um, rather than getting lost in pre-calculus as, like, a field – you got lost on your way to pre-calculus, literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, less lost and more just in the wrong place. The wrong place at the right time, which has been the case for a lot of things I've done in life. Hey, Saul. Now, if... let, me, let me take you through a few of the mathematical concepts covered in your class and just throw me a, like, um, you know, like, one out of five, like how comfortable you are. Like five, it's a walk in the park, and one, you're you're struggling. So, how about trigonometry and conic sections? Um, trigonometry, from what I remember from high school, trigonometry was not that hard. Although maybe I'm thinking more of geometry. Um, but I kind of remember um, trigonometry and geometry being easier than I thought they were going to be. Um, I don't know what the second word you said is, though. So I would say zero out of five on that. How about uh, vectors? What do you think about vectors? Vectors? That has to do with, like, angles, right? Uh, yeah, exactly, and polar coordinates, that sort of thing. That's the dots, the dots on the graph. Um, I don't think that's going to be too hard. I mean, again, I'm. Uh, this is why I'm in the class is to learn all these things. I'm not expecting to learn them, you know, before, you know, without taking the class. Um, right now we're doing uh, factoring of polynomials, which is kind of difficult, and uh, dividing polynomials, which is also kind of difficult. Why do you need to know that for med school? That's a legitimate question. It's for physics. It's the prereq for physics. Oh, you're fucked for physics. Forget about... Now... Physics is not as hard as people think. Based on the last time I took uh, math, which was in the, let's see, late 90s or turn of the century era, um, (laughs) graphing calculators were already pretty pretty darn impressive. Uh, Now I feel like they must just be supercomputers, basically. Like, I feel like you could just pass your whole pre-calc course with, like, a good graphing calculator. Or do they even have them anymore? Well, I don't have a graphing calculator as of yet. I like to keep it uh, sort of old school. I got the regular calc. Um, but I think the that the graphing... The was what we used. I just threw mine out. I would have sent it to you. My roommate said he has one I can use. But I, I think that the graphing calculators now are basically the same as the graphing calculators uh, that were around in like high school. All right, that's fair. I used to yeah. uh, use mine to play drug wars. You'd sell quantities of drugs and then, you know, um, buy new ones. And somehow all yeah. of that could be accomplished on a graphing calculator. Think about how much cooler that was in terms of distracting yourself with a digital device 
than what kids are doing in classrooms now, like Snapchatting their ball sack to each other from desk to desk. Although that sounds pretty funny. You know, <laughs> the idea of playing. Well, until you go to jail for sending minor pornography. Right. It's like, you know, playing Snake on the Nokia candy bar, playing Drug Wars. There was another great game uh, that we all played. And, like, you know, playing computer games in the computer lab. That is. There were people in the newspaper then arguing against the use of technology in schools and how it's ruining people's brains. They would, I mean, how many parents on earth right now would pay $1,000 to make that the technology that was available to their kids on a daily basis? Hundreds of millions, I would say. Yeah, without a doubt. So what's the, do you have any insight into the use of technology in schools? I guess Max does because he's in one right now. But do you have, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, content coming out this week. And then we'll let you go, although I have one, one either or question I need to ask you before we hang up on you. Well, I don't see why you're hanging up on me when you just called me, first of all. <laughs> because it's a five minute interlude on this week's episode to remind people how good you can be last week and f- to drive traffic back to the show. Yeah, but I'm kind of like Wahlberg in the sense that you don't fly me across the world for a reshoot just to kind of like uh, shake my hand and send me back. I mean, you you summoned me, and now I'm here for a couple of minutes. So let's get into things. All right. Well, and you get $1.5 million, whereas that girl only got like $1,000. Yeah, but that was the contract. I think it wasn't even that. I think she was getting $80 a day or something yeah. tiny. Yeah. I think it worked out to about $1,000. The thing is, Wahlberg is a huge star, first of all, so his time is considerably more valuable. I'm sure he probably would have made about a million dollars doing something else in that time. She was already paid She was already paid for reshoots in her initial contract. That was the difference. And she didn't even ask well, I think, for I think the, I think the, I think the irony, yeah, is that um, it wasn't a situation where he was simply, they were both requesting money and, and one wasn't getting it. He just decided to be the jerk who negotiated. Here's the irony. Also, fuck- also, let's talk about how rarely does something backfire to the extent that this did. Yeah, that's true. But here's the irony. That's what's on the cover of the New York Times. That's what's on the front five-minute block of MSNBC or whatever the news thing is and Drudge Report. We're focusing on whether one rich, white, successful actor is getting paid more than the other Meanwhile, a bunch of people are like beating their old ladies because they're $125,000 in credit card debt in some track house in some piece of shit town that's completely lost its industry and its culture and its population due to decisions made by other rich white people. So I don't understand why this is – I don't give a shit. Michelle Williams makes shitloads of money. The, the sorriest thing that's ever happened to her is that Heath Ledger killed himself. He's a father of her parents. Does it really matter whether or not she makes another $120 million or whatever the hell it is? I mean, I'm sorry. The agents in Hollywood should take care of it. It really has nothing to do with the common man's struggle to create a steady income for themselves and make sure that there's gender equality. Yeah, plus Marky Mark, like, made that movie. Like, he was the best part in the movie. Has anyone even seen this movie? Yeah, I went and saw it in the theater. It was really good. It's a, huh. it's, I didn't know it was out already. It's about the Hearst kidnapping, right? Yeah. All right, anyways, Saul. Well, there was um, some 
this is ladies two... who were uh, talking in the back of the theater the whole time. Alex, I texted you about it. Yeah, that's the worst. Um, okay, Saul, if you were in a uh, on the six train going uptown to the Metropolitan Museum in New York with a uh, guest of your choice and an outfit that you liked, obviously weather appropriate. And the train broke down in the tunnel and there was some sort of not immediately life-threatening disaster, but clearly somebody had to take charge and have a triage happen. Would you rather it be Donald Trump or Barack Obama? I mean, it's irrelevant because these days in New York, I rent large SUVs to transport myself. I wouldn't be on the subway. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Great to talk to you. Everyone listen to our pod. Saul's just as enthusiastic as he is now, and we'll see you again on Landline. Max? Yeah. Nice. Now, that's not exactly the same thing we were talking about, though. I wasn't talking about who would I rather be in charge of, like, setting up the rescue effort. Clearly, that would be Obama, because Trump seems sort of scatterbrained. I was just talking about who would you rather have sit there and, you know, talk to while you're sitting there with your sprained ankle? I think Trump would be better because even though he doesn't come off like it, he is sort of an everyman. You know, he eats fast food. He, you know, likes porn stars. It's, I think I would be able to connect a lot better with him than with Obama. That's all. Saul's mad. He's texting me. What is he mad about? He said, I can't believe that. Now he's texting you. I can hear it. Somebody's texting me. I don't know who it is. Read it out loud. Yeah, it was just um, me and Saul, or Saul was just asking me about uh, the podcast that me and him had talked about doing for a couple of years now, the S&M Hour. He says that he'll never make himself available again. Why did you just hang up on him? It seemed like we had a good thing going. We didn't have a good thing going. It was slow. It was disconnected. And this episode isn't with Saul. It's with you. But, well, yeah. Okay. So a three-way pod is definitely best in person. Because over the phone, you don't know who's about to talk or who's, you know, who's going to, who's talking. So. Um, Look, I'm the, I, pro- I'm the producer and I made the best decision for the show. That's that's the end of that. Well, you, you can deal with the repercussions then. <laughs> it's true. I will. I mean, I don't understand what his problem is. The question is, should we call him back now and see how angry he is? Uh, sure. All right. Hi, you've reached. Please leave a message and I'll get back to you. Thank you. At the tone, please record. It went right to voicemail. Yeah. We could just uh, record the rest of this pod on his voicemail. What do you, how, how long do you think it'll be till he talks to me again? Um, two hours. Well, he has, I mean, there's been a lot of fights between us. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you guys lived together, though, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Our biggest fight was about whether or not we should have both potato salad and coleslaw at a dinner party. Yeah. There was probably some underlying issues, but yeah. I think it was that I don't believe in his underlying cooking philosophy, that he he believes in multiple starches on the same plate, and that's not how I roll. Yeah. 
I mean, as long as they're low, low glycemic index, you're probably okay. But at the same time, you you can't go wrong going carb free. All right, so let, let's keep talking. Um, where should we go next? We got I got well. All right, so I had a sort of uh, this thing popped in my head while I was listening to your other to your podcast with Saul, where you're talking about um, your sort of anxiety and why you gravitate towards things like people's relationship with technology or people's relationship with food, and I sort of thought of it as a comparison between you and General Patton, which might might sound uh, surprising. But if you think about it, General Patton at the end of World War II wanted to go to war with Russia. He wanted to sort of keep the party going because he knew that was his thing, was war, and there wasn't really anything else for him. So he wanted to extend it and go to war with Russia, which would have been sort of an unending pretty costly, but at times maybe even low-intensity conflict that would have lasted him the rest of his life. And to compare that to you, you know, your sort of anxiety growing up, as it is with all dudes, was around chicks for the most part. Now that's not really an issue for you anymore. So I think that maybe sort of subconsciously you've latched on to these things like people's relationship with technology or relationship with food as a way to sort of extend this anxiety into something that's going to be maybe considerably a lower level of anxiety, but it's the gift that keeps giving. It'll last you forever. So we can talk about that if you want. All right. Well, I mean, I definitely had a lot of anxiety around the chase and the conquest of women in my early years. And I think that is definitely great topic for a larger podcast on the emerging Me Too movement and men and women's relationships and place and the chase in general and how it's done appropriately. But we're not going to have that yeah. conversation right now. The most the most surprising member of the Me Too movement is uh, Terry Crews, by far. Yeah, that's Didn't the... see that coming. Well, how did Terry Crews actually become famous before he started playing himself jokingly on shows like Arrested Development? He was in the NFL. He was a linebacker. Wow. And he was a good one because people knew who he was. No, I think he actually was not, I mean, he was good enough to be in the NFL for a few years, certainly. But it, I think he was, um, I think he got traded a bunch. Um, I don't think he was necessarily that good compared to the other guys. But definitely a good football player. So I, um, did, I, I did feel overall very wronged by the world in my adolescence based on my ability to achieve certain goals with women. Um, and it, yeah. it definitely was fuel in my rocket and it took me to some places that I never want to go back to, uh, mentally. That's probably pretty normal though. Totally. Very normal. There's this show on Netflix that's animated and it's called, uh, Big Mouth or something. Yeah, it's Big Mouth. Yeah, right. And, um, Actually, one of our friends' wives said that she, when she saw it for the first time, it sounded like I had written the script. So uh, whether that's a, a compliment or a negative assessment, I can't be sure. But anyways, um, I think there could be some – there's certainly some 
miss missing receptacle for my fundamental anger in life. That is true. But Max, with the technology, it doesn't bother you that there are now cell phones in in everyone's face during all conversations? Or is that not how you live your life? I mean, don't you resonate with any of the things I say about cell phones and how overarchingly annoying they are? That where I really get mad. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, sort of. The place that I get most mad about cell phones is in places that I've deemed sacred. So it was one thing to have cell phones in, you know, I don't know, dorm rooms or on the subway or people, you know, taking them out to party with friends or whatever. Once you start having people pulling cell phones out at live sporting events, once you have people pulling cell phones out at the Christmas Eve cocktail party, once you have people pulling cell phones out at the dinner table on the beach, those are places that I just never got. I I thought that there would be my perfect world of cell phone dissemination through all the nooks and crannies of our life ended someplace. There was still 15% of the world where cell phones didn't work. And the greatest example of that is Sometimes in the places that I liked the most, like going home to where we grew up or going to my parents' vacation home, cell phones wouldn't work. And so people wouldn't have them because the cell signal wasn't there. Now the towers are everywhere and there isn't that sacred spot where you can't get cell service anymore. I mean, there are a few of them, but how often are we in those places? And so I thought, okay, fine. Everyone will have a cell phone at work and they're going to have a cell phone in their, you know, sort of Sunday afternoon. I'm hungover and I want to, like, check what everyone's going to do on their social media. But once you're starting to, like, watch a sunset at your favorite two-week be- uh, summer beach home and you've got a cell phone in front of you and you're, like, reading about what it says on Facebook, why am I the only one who thinks that's completely fucked? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I am annoyed by those things also, but... Not to the point where I would, you know, start a podcast about it. Um, but, like, I mean, I'm a fan of cell phones. I'm on my cell phone all day, every day. Um, granted, I use it mostly for talking to people. Like, for instance, I talk to SK not every day, but almost every day. Without the cell phone, that wouldn't be possible. And, you know, there's like 30 people like that who I talk to constantly, who I would basically never get to talk to otherwise. Um, As far as, like, people constantly having their phone out at, like, concerts and stuff like that, yeah, that's kind of annoying. But, uh, again, I guess I just don't really care that much about it. Well, I don't know why I've latched on to it. I I guess I just feel that the natural world was the last frontier that would always rise up against humans idiotic decision making and it will the seas will rise the you know cyclone bombs or whatever they're called will freeze and the heat will get to a uh, place where our cell phones melt but yeah. uh, you know the use of cell phones in the natural environment is what has always killed me I had a freak out at Christmas, we were um, snowshoeing up Mount Hood, my sister, my wife, and I with Homer, and we were just going on a fun trail in the 
mid-afternoon before sunset and we got up pretty high on the mountain you could turn around and see the impending sunset over the beautiful snow-colored hills and you could see the snow-covered hills and you could see the peak of the mountain and it was bright out and it was all the pine trees were covered in loafy snow and it was very idyllic and my sister took the phone out for a couple pictures and that was okay with me and then she took out the picture for the phone for a video and then she took out the picture or the phone for another video and I flipped out and I started screaming at everyone. Why doesn't anyone understand my point of view? Why doesn't anyone listen to me? I don't want the phone here. Homer's not paying attention to the world. He's not paying attention to the snow. He's not paying attention to the environment. He's paying attention to the phone. The second the phone comes out, it's all he looks at. And I flipped and I sort of just like had an old fashioned Alex, uh, temper tantrum uh, well, i mean would it really have been the holidays without you flipping out at phoebe though no it wouldn't have been but can you see my point of view there yeah definitely and yeah. and um, um, maybe it's the camera thing maybe how do we get cameras back in people's that's the thing there was an article today that i think saul sent me and luckily now saul and i aren't friends anymore so i don't have to reference him but um the uh that if our cell phones were shittier, that maybe we wouldn't be using them so much. Like maybe the solution to all of this cell phone crap is that we just have cell phones that aren't as good. Because these aren't phones. These are computers. These are geolocators. These are maps. They're everything that we know they are. I mean, it sounds boring now, me saying this stuff. It's like who would ever want to listen to my analysis of a cell phone? But if you turn on the news every single night, there's new information about how it's either that all of our kids are fucked is the story or new evidence shows that the cell phone companies conspired to make sure that we use them as much as possible or our brain chemistry is changing. I mean, this is stuff I started saying three, four, five years ago and everyone is just, you know, charging on with using their cell phone twice, three times, four times as much as they used to. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of at the, the core of that issue is... uh it's just human self-control. It's something that sort of ticks me off at times. It's like, it's not the cell phone. It's the person not controlling themselves in terms of how they, or how often they use it. Um, but I mean, about the, uh, the camera, I think having the camera on the phone is really good. Like for instance, I have maybe one picture of Lucy. I think maybe one picture of guy, but then all my dogs, that I've had since having a camera phone, I've got hundreds of pictures of them. So it's good to be able to take pictures whenever you want. Would you ever carry a camera in your, in your pocket along with your cell phone? No, never. <laughs> no. All right. Um, well, we got to wind up here, Max. So do you want to get into uh, gun control? Yeah, let's do it. What do you want to talk about? Well, I'm not a uh, constitutional law expert, but we can just assume I am for the sake of the podcast. Now, the the purpose of the Second Amendment seems pretty clear to me that in order to serve as some sort of barrier between the government becoming a dictatorship is our right to have weapons that are sort of commensurate to a degree with the weapons that the government has. And uh, so I don't see why that argument is really 
seems to constantly be getting lost in the quote-unquote conversation, and I'm putting ironic air quotes about that, around the conversation about gun control. And if you're saying, you know, that's stupid, the government is never going to try and uh, take over or become a dictatorship, I would agree that is pretty far-fetched, but statistically speaking, almost every government in the history of humans has done that. So it's not really that far-fetched. So I actually tend to agree with you on this issue. I understand why having handguns and 22s or, you know, shotguns and 22s doesn't satisfy the proletariat's need to defend themselves. And I do think that one of the biggest problems, which ties into my larger points on this podcast about people not paying attention to how the forces are actually working against them, including on technology, it, it factors right into this. Everyone just assumes the government is good. And it would, it's weird how maybe liberals right now should take a good look in the mirror and understand how bad the government can be in their eyes and then question whether or not they do want to give up their individual rights and freedoms on any level. And that is it hard to believe that if gun control happened that that would just be the first of many areas that the government decided to excuse me if gun control was enhanced would that be a way it's not as if the person who's in charge now is going to be in charge later look at obama he did all these executive actions that liberals loved it was protecting national monuments it was expanding fishing laws to protect endangered species it was banning offshore drilling it was stuff that i actually like well, if you do that, it's not about the action steps. It's about the precedent you set for the next guy to say, well, look, I don't care. I disagree with this guy. He used this vehicle to do everything he wanted. Look at the health care law. Everyone's like, the Republicans are jamming the tax law in at the 25th hour. Nobody's read it. Everyone's on Twitter. Fat John Tester in Montana's on Twitter being like, this is a handwritten law. No one's there's handwritten notes. How am I ever supposed to look through this? Yeah, no shit. What do you think Nancy Pelosi did with the health care law? They passed it in the middle of the night when nobody was paying attention, and this is what you got. And by the way, also the health seemed like also seemed like they were talking about the uh, health care law on the news for like a month or two months. And the whole time they were talking about how they were trying to jam it in without anybody having time to read it. It's like, you know, you've been talking about it for two months. Tell me none of these uh, people in Congress have had time to read this law in the last two months or whatever it was. I mean, what does it take, two hours to read it? I don't know. And I guess who's to say that the way that they've been doing things for the last 300 years is actually any any better than jamming it in? Like, is our, our you know... Are incredible statesmen like Ted Kennedy, who was a, a deadbeat drunk who killed his babysitter because he was afraid of everyone finding out that he'd been schlepping her. Is his like 45 day filibuster on the floor of the Senate a better way to make government happen? I mean, look, it's a very slippery slope because you can just become a nihilist, which our upcoming guest, Dr. Chris, is, and he's becoming increasingly. Uh, enthralled by conspiracy theories and uh, <laughs> he'll be doing our annual Super Bowl podcast with Chris and Mike 
um, triangle sports with Patriots fans, whatever we're calling it, landline sports. Anyways, to the, the gun control thing then, Max, is look, so if that's true, and I believe that it is, and there's everyone that the government could become uh, evil power, and it might not happen now, it might happen in 15 years or 50 years, but you can't like get all the guns back right before they decide to like invade your home and put you under you know martial law or house arrest. Yeah, they'd probably be locked up at that point. What do you do about these whack jobs like the guy in Vegas? Um, well, let's see. To the first point about like um, about protecting against the government, it seems to me another example of like typical liberal hypocrisy. And I'm by no means like a Republican per se, but I do like to recognize hypocrisy on the left when I can. And, you know, they'll rail constantly about how Trump is the most evil person in the history of the world. And, you know, think about how scary it would be if Ted Cruz was president and all these people like this, who they view as these sort of right wing Christian wannabe dictators. But then at the same time, they want to take away the one true way that you can actually protect against that, or at least attempt to protect against that um and then uh as far as what do you do about like the mass shooters um i would say there probably is not anything you can do about it i mean just uh just accept it it is what it is and uh get over it then i would like the hardcore right to accept the fact there's nothing you can do about terrorists and building giant walls and having stupid immigration policies is the exact same thing if somebody wants to walk into a high school football game in Texas and blow themselves up, they're going to find a way to do it. And if you if if it's not, you know, thanks to technology and YouTube and all these wonderful social media sites we all love so much. And every single person who listens to my show except me is a, a party to because they're on all these uh, they're part of all these social media websites. If if you are even if you can keep everyone with brown skin out of the country, which I think is what Trump would ultimately love to do, except for like rich doctors or something like that, you know, the Ben Carsons of the world, that you then have people, white people being inspired by jihad on Facebook because they have some fucked up way of figuring out how to like interpret Islam back to white supremacy or some weird thing like that. So I, I don't I there's no people people are gonna do weird stuff and and nobody's saying that on the terrorism side either. Yeah, I mean I'll I'll walk back my, my previous statement a little bit. Of course there is stuff you can do to try and prevent mass shootings. Um I think that there probably should be stricter laws about what you have to go through in order to get a gun. You know, just like you have to take driver's ed before you can get your driver's license, I think it's a little crazy that you don't have to take any sort of gun safety class before you can buy a gun. Um, and, uh, you know, background checks, waiting periods, whatever, I don't have any problem with that. Um, as far as terrorism, uh, yeah, you certainly uh, can prevent it to a degree uh, so you're you uh, couldn't be more wrong about that and uh, as far as building the wall 
I don't really know much about that. I don't really care too much either, to be honest. Yeah, but we wouldn't do a whole lot, but probably would stop a fair amount of immigration. I mean, I'm not anti-immigration, but at the same time, we can't let everybody in the world into the U.S., so I don't know. Well, but but Max, the, the government that stops terrorism fully is the government that is acting like a government that we should have guns to protect ourselves against. So if there's ocular scanning and everyone has a computer chip installed in their wrist and we are doing monitoring of everybody with, you know, every single Muslim on planet Earth and we are figuring out how to track them all with greater security measures and greater eavesdropping, greater wiretaps and greater, you know, stopping them at the border, you know, that's the government that I want a gun to protect myself against. So you can st- yeah, but I mean, you know, there's context to it. Like, um, well, there's context to gun control. Yeah, exactly. I mean, those it, those examples that I gave, I think, are are good examples of gun control. Um, as far as like having ocular scans, I mean, when I'm getting onto an airplane and I'm going to be trapped in the steel tube, driven by some, you know, shaky-handed alcoholic, the one thing I'm thing about is i wish there was much more robust security here because i'm not really uh, comfortable with the amount of security here so i don't have any problem with with giving up some of my freedom quote unquote because i don't really think i'm giving up anything but i don't mind a little bit more national security if it means that uh the plane that i'm on isn't going to explode in the middle of when it's flying um as far as like uh you know, uh, what's the word, uh, profiling people. Again, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's if certain people are the ones who are, uh, you know, driving cars into crowds of people, then yeah, uh, there's going to be some innocent people who are profiled too bad. That's the way it is. If, you know, redheads who are five ten and like big shoulders and chiseled chest, were the ones who were blowing up airplanes and I got profiled like, okay, yeah, I totally understand why you're doing that. I don't have a problem with it. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that either. What I have a problem with is that this sort of, we all assume, and this gets right back to technology that the fanciest stuff that the Israeli defense forces are selling us that has all the greatest computer chips and all the greatest retinal scan and all the hypersensitive, you know, geothermal, imaging or whatever the hell it is you're putting all that in a database and then it turns out that some hacker in Kyrgyzstan can hack into it and change all the identifying information or WikiLeaks or any of these people like it's not a fail-safe system all these databases all of these data points all of these ways that we're keeping everybody safe are bullshit and and who's in charge anyways who do we are? Do we trust the like frat boys from UVA who are running the CIA? Like, why do we assume that if we just add more expense, that all of our systems are suddenly ironclad? And I think that we are constantly spending money on things that sound good on paper. We're not having a larger discussion about. I don't think we can change the hearts and minds of the jihadis. I do think we could have a more constructive conversation about how to disengage with them you know you want to talk about a shithole country how about isis how about the isis country right now there's a shithole country 
why don't we just let them burn themselves out over there eating dirt and you know i'm sorry if they're raping women and beheading people don't go anywhere near them well i mean that's sort of i think that's kind of the policy that we're leaning towards now which is more or less a shift away from say the the bush cheney idea of like regime change and then putting in a friendly government and hoping that that's that idea you know that those chips will just continue to fall throughout the middle east because that in theory sounded like a good idea but then it didn't really work out and then when given the opportunity to actually have like um you know put a a good or a democratic government into place it's we've seen that that generally doesn't happen like you know the arab spring was a good example of a good opportunity that was squandered by sort of insanity you know the arab spring could have turned into them being like okay now let's have a normal government that's voted in by the people but instead they got isis so i think we're sort of um like i said shifting away from the bush cheney let's replace these dictators with people that we like going back to what we had before which was more or less let's just make friends with whoever the baddest dictator is and have kind of a uh a policy of containment versus let's try and work with the country. Well, I don't know if I ever told you this, Max, and you're probably the worst person to tell it to because you actually went to war uh, as a Marine, but I always thought it would be good to write a book called Send Me to War. Just talk about how basically you can connect so much of the inability to manage these international situations with the fact that there are less and less well-educated, well-off people that are actually going and engaging in military conflict and in any way understanding the nuance of all these different parties and what they want. And, you know, I think going back to the gun safety issue, how many of the people who are are sort of anti-gun have never fired one? And how does that actually factor into their ability to say one way or another what we should have with guns? But even more than that, if you don't believe that armed conflict is actually happening in the world as we sit here right now because you've never seen it and because you can self-select that information out of your news feed, both you know, Facebook, large news feed, large end news feed, and regular news feed, small end news feed, then you never really have to deal with that question. You never have to worry about the idea of the government rising up against you and taking away your rights Whereas people like you have seen that people have to overthrow their governments in the real world right now in modern times. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that all of this connects to is we really have no frame of reference of what it's like to be involved in international conflict right now. Because so many of the people who have the means and have the skill sets to have comprehensive and educated situations on these topics don't have to engage with them out of choice. Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, I would say your characterization of like the frat boys running the CIA, not knowing what they're doing is probably not accurate. I think that those, those people tend to be, um, 
usually very well educated and uh, like hyper intelligent from what I've, I mean, I don't know anyone in the CIA, but from what I've read, and these are, you know, not fictional books, like actual uh, um, nonfiction books, that those people tend to be super smart, have a really good understanding of what's going on. But they're dealing with with problems that don't really have a solution. So they're trying to pick the best of the worst worst outcomes. So, All right. Well, I'm not anti-CIA, CIA. Obviously, the CIA has like a crawler and they're listening to us. Maybe we should get a bunch of listeners in the CIA. That's a good way to beat Rick Steves. Who is Rick Steves, by the way? You keep talking about him. Rick Steves Somebody is Somebody you a... know? No, Rick Steves is a, I believe, Belgian-born or um, what's the country that's not France, but it's like it and it's not Swiss either. I'll use the almighty internet. Dutch? No. Anyways, he lives in up. He lives in Washington. He um, is a longtime host. Well, first and foremost, he's an author. He's an author of these guidebooks called Rick Steves Europe and Rick Steves Rome, Rick Steves Paris, Rick Steves this, Rick Steves that. And he also has a television show on PBS. He's sort of like the Charlie Rose of travel for PBS, but none of his like uh, exposure issues have come out yet. Um, but no, he's cool. He's a huge, he's a huge legal marijuana advocate. Um, he loves wine. He loves food. He's always traveling around and telling people how to do things in a more sort of local and authentic way, figuring out how to take a taxi and learn a little bit of language or take the bus and not always get like a, you know, there's a whole era of traveling in Europe where it was a tour and it was very American and it was all about insulating people from any exposure to the dirtier or more culturally fun spots of traveling and he really kind of gave people a guidebook that they could read and he encouraged them to travel in a fun way and so he has a podcast and it has a certain number of listeners and i want to beat him because it's not that many um does he know that you have this sort of weird session with him no he like, i love rick steves he's sort of like you remember bob vila he's like the bob vila of of traveling or like uh, you love him the way that uh Selena's, uh, the president of Selena's fan club, loved her. Oh, man, he was born in California. Terrible. I thought he was actually, uh, he was actually an international. But anyways, he's got a big empire for himself. I would love to become the Rick Steves of whatever it is I'm into. Food and anti-technology. Did, um... Phoebe ever listened to my last podcast with you? I'm not sure. Why? Is there anything you want to tell her before we go here? Well, no. When I was listening to the last one that she was on, she said that she hadn't listened to it, which I thought was a little, uh, I don't know, hurtful almost. So how much guilt should I have about the way we treated Saul before I get off and have to deal with it myself? Um, probably... Uh, I would I'd probably not as much. Well, actually, I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a dicey situation. I haven't hung up on Saul in a while like that, so I would say probably in between uh, when you woke up after saying that girl had a dry vagina 
And, uh, you know, one time I woke up handcuffed to a bench in a, a sheriff's department, sort of in between those those uh, situations in terms of uh, toxic shame. How come it always has to be on Saul's terms? Why can't he just let me be the producer for once? I mean, I think he would say, why does it always have to be on your terms? I mean, you're the one who hung up on him. Yeah, it's true. Well, he wouldn't follow the rules. I told him it was supposed to be a five-minute call, and he wouldn't follow the rules. But anyways, Max, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to me on a recorded line. I know you only do this so you have someone to talk to. I have no idea how you're going to spend the rest of your day given the measurement of caffeine you've just consumed. But um, we're excited to hear about yeah. it. And I'll I'll call do my it. chemistry homework. Nice. We all wish you the best of luck in your prerequisites for med school and we all hope that no one we know will ever be treated by you once you become a doctor um <laughs> and yeah i mean keep keep rallying the trump support down there in north carolina we're gonna need him to win that again if we all get our wish and have him get reelected. yeah 2020 is right around the corner we gotta beat oprah and we'll talk to you next week for a little five minute check-in will you be able to follow the five minute rule Unlike Saul? No, but you can hang up on me. I, I won't get too too worked up about it. I mean, I'll text Saul about it, and we'll talk shit about you behind your back, but it's no big deal, really. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for talking. We'll talk soon. Okay. I'll text you tonight. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Ishii, we love you. Landline is hosted, written, and produced by Alex McKay. The best thing you can do to support the show is tell a friend. Music by the Pitchfork Revolution out of Bend, Oregon. taking this show to the top, baby. You're listening to Landline.